Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. If you are a sports fan, you know that uh, whether you like it or not, Instant Replay is here to stay. With the technology we have, we are not going to return to the days of merely accepting a call from an official because he or she made the call. We want to go to technology and make sure it's right. At times, it takes a little bit of the excitement out of the game because you can't get too excited when the turnover happens or when the exciting touchdown is made because you know instantly that it's going to go to replay. And you're going to hear those famous words from the announcers. Now, you need indisputable video evidence to overturn the call. I got sick of hearing that the first year they went to replay, and I assume that they're getting some sort of bonus every time they say that because they say it every time. But certainly there are some positives to the system, even if it slows the game down just a bit. Uh, There is the idea that you're going to get the call right. If you were watching basketball last night, you know that in the last two minutes of a game, they can go to instant replay to figure out who the ball was off of. So the ball is given to the team that it was supposed to be given to, which means it's fair for everybody involved. And we usually enjoy seeing those replays until it's about the 10th time in the super slow-mo, and by then we've had enough of it. But we know that in replay, you can catch things that you didn't see in the live action. And you have a better understanding of what took place in the play because they've slowed it down, magnified it, and you get a better look at everything involved. Sometimes, not just in sports, but in life, sometimes we go back into an instant replay in our minds. We think back about something we said, trying to figure out, could we have said it differently? We think back about an action that we committed, and we wonder if we could have done something different in that situation. Maybe it's an effort to try to justify our actions, or maybe it's simply to make sure we don't make the same mistake in the future. We can actually take our mental replay system to the extreme and live in the past, pining for what we call the good old days. But just what were the good old days? I mean, when you think back in your life and you think about the idyllic time, when would that be and why? Well, it might be a sense of more quiet and peaceful times rather than the chaotic world we live in now. You think back to when you didn't know everything you know now because you didn't have technology and therefore times were simpler, more peaceful and quiet, maybe even more stable, family relationships being more stable than they are now. But we must also admit that when it comes to our memory, we are very selective. That is, we pick the the good things of the past and want to go back to those without realizing that we certainly don't want to give up the good things of the present. I mean, I don't think any of us want to go back to difficulty in travel or communications or using a typewriter and whiteout to write a paper in school. 
I was joking with a group of pastors this week that I was meeting with. They were talking about how when they were in seminary, there was always the temptation, even like our students today, to play on your computer rather than listening to the professor. And I told them I never had that temptation. I never succumbed to that because we didn't have computers when I was in seminary. We didn't, didn't have that idea. I bring all of that up because in our ancient encounter for today, this is going to be the good old days for Israel. For the Jews living in Jesus' time, if you were to ask them when was the height of Israel, they would have pointed back to the days that we are looking at today. A time when the reign of King Solomon was prosperous. His enemies had been defeated. They were living in the land, a time when the people were numerous and the land indeed was a land flowing with milk and honey, the land producing its crops, a time when the beautiful temple had been completed and God was in there dwelling in that temple and the people were free to worship God and be with God, a time when a king ruled with wisdom at least for a large portion of his reign. So our text this morning is 1 Kings chapter 9, and we are going to be talking about God's replay. Now, don't push that analogy too far. I am not saying that we're going to look and see very closely whether God got the call right or not. That's not the point. I am not trying to say that we need further evidence to make sure that what happened in the past really happened. I'm simply using that title as a way of saying that nothing here is new. This encounter with God between Solomon and God is going to rehash a lot of what we've already heard when it comes to uh, God and Solomon's father, David. But in looking at it from a different angle, we're going to get better focus, better visibility. So look with me at 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you... If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. 
Well, we were, of course, introduced to King Solomon last week as the son of David and his affair with Bathsheba. So in this story, Solomon is now on the throne. David has passed on. Solomon is now the third king of the United Kingdom and the final king of the United Kingdom because after Solomon's time, the kingdom will be split in two. Solomon's divided heart, he had a devotion to the Lord, but not fully, is indicative of the fact that his kingdom is going to be divided after he is gone. So the first thing we want to see this morning is God's return. Because as you see in the first verse there, this is not the first time, it's actually in the second verse, this is not the first time God has come to Solomon. It says very clearly this is the second time that he has appeared to him. The first encounter occurred in chapter 3, where God told Solomon to ask for whatever he wanted. Think about that for a moment, the ultimate genie in a bottle moment, only this time he only gets one wish. God says, Solomon, ask me for anything, and I will give it to you. So what would you ask for? If you had that opportunity, what would be your prayer? Well, it would likely probably have something to do with health or wealth, and even that would likely depend upon your current circumstances. That is, if you were struggling with health, you would ask for health. If you were struggling financially, you would ask for wealth. Solomon, of course, famously asks for a heart that is able to discern between good and evil, for an understanding mind in order to govern the people. In other words, he asked for wisdom. And God generously gave him wisdom to the extent that if you know your Old Testament, you know that Solomon's name is still to this very day essentially equated with the idea of wisdom. And then there is that story to prove that he got the wisdom that God gave him. And that is these two women came to Solomon. They both had a young baby. One baby died. The other was alive. And these two women come to Solomon claiming that they are the mother of the live baby. So how is Solomon going to determine who's ba- who, who is the mother of this baby? Well, he orders that the baby be cut in half. And half given to each woman, which of course prompts the the real mother to say, no, don't do that. Give her to the other woman, my adversary. And by this, Solomon knows who the real mother is of of the live baby. And that biblical story is famous enough that the writers of Seinfeld, I can't believe I'm using a Seinfeld illustration for the second time in like two months. But the writers of Seinfeld use that as a plot line. Elaine and Kramer were arguing over the rightful owner of a bicycle. And so Newman steps in, and Newman orders that the bicycle be cut in half in order that both of them have half. Well, you're probably wondering if this first encounter with God is so famous, why are we not looking at that this morning? And that's a good question. And the reason we're not is because just a couple of years ago, I used that in a brief series we did on the idea of wisdom. And so I used that text several years ago and did not want to reuse it this morning. And so we're looking at this second encounter. But God was so pleased with that initial request by Solomon that he not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him great wealth as well. And Solomon will rule over Israel for some 40 years. And clearly this first encounter with God occurred at the early stages of his reign. The second encounter that we're looking at this morning occurs midway through his reign, or we're at halftime now. And at halftime, Solomon has has had a good first half. 
The first 20 years of his reign have been wonderful. The second 20 is not going to be so much. So the second thing I want you to see is God's presence, which is declared very clearly in verse 3. Solomon has been busy with building projects during the first half of his reign. When a king is not at war and when the nation is prosperous, that gives him time and money to build. And that's exactly what Solomon has been doing. So he builds his own palace. He builds the temple that we saw last week his father David desired to build. And then in chapter 8, which is obviously the chapter that immediately precedes what we've read, There is a prayer of dedication, a prayer of praise to God. Now that the temple has been completed, Solomon is pouring his heart out to God. And here in chapter 9, we see verse 3 is referencing that prayer. And God says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. What is that prayer? That God would dwell in the temple. That this magnificent building that Solomon has built would become the home of God. Otherwise, it is simply a nice building, like many of the cathedrals in Europe, where there used to be vibrant worship of God, and now they are mere tourist attractions. But no sooner have we heard his prayer, and that this prayer has been answered, that God gives him and us an ominous warning. I mean, we are just briefly removed from the dedication ceremony when God says to Solomon, it might just happen in the future that this temple is going to be cast out of my sight and become a heap of ruins. Talk about a Debbie Downer. I don't want to accuse God of that, but I mean, we've just come out of the ceremony dedicating the temple, and God says there might just come a time when this whole thing is going to be destroyed. And we know for a fact that that did indeed occur some 400 years later. And then its replacement saw the same fate. Now, you understand that the temple in the New Testament that Jesus went in and out of is not Solomon's temple. That had been destroyed years earlier. But it had been rebuilt by Herod. And then that temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, just a few decades after the crucifixion of Christ. What then about the promise of putting his name here forever? I mean, we saw last week that David had been given the promise of an eternal throne and a descendant of David sitting upon that throne. And we saw that that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, even though there had been years and centuries of no king sitting on the throne from the line of David, it had indeed been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So likewise here, the promise seems to imply that God will always dwell in the temple. And yet this becomes an issue when we realize that the temple was destroyed. Could there then be a greater fulfillment once again in Christ? Or does it mean simply that God is going to dwell in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, whether there is an actual temple there or not? We'll we'll come back to that in a few moments. But all of this begs the question, why? Why did the temple only last about 400 years as the dwelling place of God? And the answer to that question leads us to points three and four, which are basically two sides of the same coin. In point number three, we're going to see the positive side. In point number four, we're going to see the negative side. So the positive side is God's promise. And we're not going to take a lot of time here because this really is a repetition of what we talked about last week. 
Verse 5, the promise of a descendant on the throne forever is restated to Solomon. He's heard this before. David had actually told him this during his dying days. And we've talked before about how significant the last words of someone are. And David, in his last words, gives Solomon this promise from God about an eternal throne. And then God has given that promise to Solomon already. So this is now at least the third time that he's heard this promise. But the truth of the matter is we need repetition because we are prone to forget. I mean, we even, we even have a saying about it, right? We say something like, well, I've slept since then. Meaning I can't even understand what I said or did. I can't remember what I said or did yesterday, much less years earlier. I've had people ask me in the middle of the week, what did you preach on last Sunday? And it takes me a while to remember it. And I'm the one that preached it. So I know you don't remember everything. So we have tools to remember. We have chimes on our phones. We have calendars that pop up with reminders. If I don't put something on my calendar, I am likely to forget it. Students review before a test because they certainly cannot remember everything they read over the last eight weeks or however long the semester is, nor can they remember everything that the teacher has said. And so if we need reminders for the little things in life, it's no wonder that Solomon, after years, needed a reminder of God's promise. And so again, that promise is given, an eternal throne with the descendants of David. And again, as we saw last week, Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of that promise. But after Solomon, the kingdom is going to be split into, and for a good number of years, some 400 years total, there will be a descendant of David at least on the throne for half of that kingdom. But then there will be at least that many years where there is no descendant upon the throne. And again, we saw last week that God has fulfilled his promise in the coming of Jesus. The son of David, as Matthew introduces us to him in the first verse of his gospel, the one who rules and reigns forever. But that brings up another question. Why do it that way? I mean, why not just fulfill the promise through the continued existence of Israel with its capital in Jerusalem? Why not fulfill the promise with Solomon's temple still standing though clearly it would need some renovations through the years, but still standing nevertheless. Why not have a great-grandson, to whatever degree it would be, of David sitting on the throne of Israel on this very day? All of these questions bring us to the next point, and really to the gospel itself. And so the next point we want to talk about is God's conditions. God's conditions really make up the bulk of all of these verses that we've read. Now, you might remember when we started this series, we started with Abraham, and there was a covenant between God and Abraham, and we said that that was a, that was a one-sided covenant. That is, God was the only one who walked through the broken pieces of the animal ratifying the covenant because God was going to fulfill the covenant regardless. But in this covenant, there are conditions conditions that Solomon and his descendants must meet in order for God to continue blessing them. Now, I realize we struggle with this because we so want to guard any hint against work salvation. But we must also guard against the opposite, and the opposite is that it doesn't matter what we do. 
Antinomianism, against the law. It doesn't really matter what, what kind of obedience you have as long as you have grace. We might call that from a New Testament perspective, trampled grace. Meaning that we accept the grace of God, but without the responsibility for living in obedience, which that grace brings. And this, of course, brings up the whole idea of divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. And the idea that in salvation, God is sovereign. God is the one who saves. But in sanctification, we must walk in obedience to grow in our relationship with Christ. And I know I will not answer all your questions uh, on this somewhat confusing issue, but I, I will try to answer some of them and clear some of it up. So what are the conditions that God lays down for Solomon and his descendants? The first condition is that he must walk in integrity or uprightness, live a life of integrity. In other words, he is to live a life of obedience. Now, this certainly does not mean perfection. We've seen that David committed one of the most famous sins in history and added to that sin others in trying to cover it up. But at the same time, David was called a man after God's own heart. Now, we are certainly familiar with conditions when it comes to our children. We say things like, if you'll clean your room, that's the condition. If you do this, then you can have ice cream. That's the blessing. You meet the condition, cleaning up your room, you can have the blessing. You can have something uh, sweet to eat. We also place conditions on our children before we bless them all of the time. And yet, I'm not trying to say that this is a one-on-one -on -one correlation with God. That every time we are obedient, God is going to bless us. I mean, I even hesitated to use that as an example because I know that is our natural default conclusion. That if life is going good, then God is blessing me. If life is not going good, then God is against me for some reason. And hopefully we've seen in the past that that is a very simplistic way to look at things and certainly not biblical because there are plenty of people in the Bible who are very faithful to God who live a life filled with suffering and persecution. So it's just not as simple as that. Furthermore, the blessings of God are not always material or physical. And that is what we tend to think. The greatest blessing is, of course, intimacy with God. And hopefully we can agree that intimacy with God is not going to come apart from obedience to God. That your relationship with God is only going to be as intimate as your walk of integrity or uprightness with him. And this is one of the major reasons why um, they, they were eventually removed from the, the inhabitants of the land. Why, why did God tell the Israelites to go in and get rid of the people? because he knew that they would be a stumbling block to him, which leads us to the second condition, and that is faithful worship. They were to walk in integrity, and the faithful worship is just a positive way of spinning what God says here, that they are not to succumb to idolatry. So when they came into the land, they were to drive out the inhabitants, not because of a racial issue, but because of a religious one. If those inhabitants remained, and some of them did, then they would be likely to worship their gods and intermarry and stray from God, which again is exactly what they did, including King Solomon. And so here in our text is a warning. And that warning is a gracious reminder from God. Again, even as parents, when we warn, isn't that grace? When we warn our children against danger, because they're not old enough or mature enough to see that danger for themselves. We're not angry with them. 
We are graceful with them because we're telling them, don't go in this direction. There is danger there. And God is warning his children about what will happen to them if they do not walk in integrity and do not faithfully worship him. And instead, they turn to other gods who are no gods at all. And so he warns that idolatry will bring about destruction, not only of the temple, but they will be cut off from the land and their name will become a byword. What's a byword? A byword is a term, an example, a notorious example that is so common, as soon as you say it, everyone knows what you're talking about. For example, if I say the name Hitler, you immediately think of the atrocities that that man committed. His name is a byword for those tremendous atrocities. If you think in biblical terms, and I say Sodom and Gomorrah, you immediately understand what I'm talking about, the sins that went on in that city that led to its destruction. And so God says here that if Israel turns away from him, the temple's going to be destroyed, they're going to be depart, deported from the land, and they're going to become a byword such that when you say the word Israel, you think of idolatry. And you think of God destroying the Israelites and bringing destruction upon the temple because of their idolatry, a permanent object lesson. And again, historically, we know that this did happen multiple times because neither the kings nor the people kept the conditions that God sets forth here. They did not walk in integrity nor obedience before God, and they did not faithfully worship him. Solomon himself, I told you the first half of his reign was good. It was, profit, it, was, it was prosperous and he was faithful. But the second half of his reign, he strayed. It was said of him at one point that Solomon loved the Lord. But in the second half of his reign, it says that he also loved many foreign women, which is a way of saying that he turned his devotion away from God. He had a divided heart, and as a result, his kingdom was going to be divided. Now, this is a far cry from the celebration of a consecrated temple, but we know the feeling. Perhaps you can think back to a time in youth group where you went to youth camp. Or maybe as an adult when you went to a conference and you had this spiritual high. I mean, you, you recommit yourself to the Lord. Maybe it just occurred in a, in a regular worship service that for some reason was just more meaningful than the average. And you recommit yourself to the Lord and say, I'm going to serve you faithfully. And you mean every word of it. I'm not doubting your desire. But then when you come back from that camp or that conference, it's not too very much longer after that that things are just back to normal. You go back to your old routine. Why can't we stay on that spiritual high? Why can't we follow the desires that we genuinely do have to follow Christ? I mean, isn't this what Paul struggles with in Romans? Why do I do that which I know I don't want to do? And why can't I faithfully do that which I know I should do. How can Solomon, a man who this very day is still known for his wisdom, make such foolish choices? I, like you, received an update from one of our friends in Central Asia this week. And, and in that update, she and her roommate were talking about how they'd been sharing with a Turk. That, again, is our people group from last month. They were sharing the gospel with a local Turk. And the Turk said this, we know we're not supposed to sin, but we can't stop ourselves. We sin anyway. 
And they went on to say how this was a major statement for a Turk to make because they tend to think that sin is something outside of themselves. But here, this person was acknowledging that sin was internal. I'm struggling to do what I want to do and not do what I don't want to do. We recently concluded the book of Joshua in our Read Through the Bible plan. The last chapter in Joshua's farewell speech to the people is that famous chapter where Joshua says to them, you're going to have to choose this day who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the gods of our fathers or are you going to serve the gods of the nations that surround you? And Joshua, of course, famously says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But, but what I want to focus on is what the people said. And the people said, we will serve the Lord. They pledged it. But listen to Joshua's response. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Joshua says in this spiritually high moment, when the people are saying to him, we will do whatever the Lord tells us to do, Joshua says, no, you won't. You can't do it. It's impossible. Well, is it hopeless then? Is there no hope for us that we can be faithful in serving God? Well, that leads us to our final point, and that is God's solution. In spite of the renown of King Solomon, we actually don't find much about him in the pages of the New Testament. He's mentioned a couple of times in reference to the temple meaning that it's really not talking about him, but it's talking about the temple which he constructed. He is, of course, found in Matthew's genealogy, as we mentioned last week. But other than those few references, Solomon is largely absent from the New Testament. He's not in Hebrews 11, even as we've seen every other individual we've looked at is at least mentioned in that great chapter. Solomon is not. The only other references to Solomon in the New Testament are for comparison's sake, meaning that the New Testament, Jesus specifically, is looking back and making a comparison to the height, to the good old days of Solomon. You see, we compare things to, to the epitome of what we're talking about, right? Just like every time it snows, what does someone say? Remember the blizzard of 93? It's always compared to the, to the height. All right, so twice in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we have comparisons of Solomon. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, consider the lilies. He's looking out at the fields of flowers and how beautiful they are. And he says, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And so he's making the point that if God clothes the grass of the field like this, he'll take care of you too. But the comparison I really want to focus on is found in Matthew chapter 12. Luke records the same thing as well. And this too is Jesus speaking and making a comparison to Solomon. And it's actually the story he's referencing is in 1 Kings chapter 10, the next chapter from the one we're looking at, where the queen of Sheba hears about the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon and says to herself, I've got to see this firsthand. So the queen of Sheba travels great distances to meet with Solomon, having heard about his wealth and wisdom. And when she comes away from that meeting, she says, the half has not been told me. This is far greater than I could have ever imagined. The wisdom of Solomon and the wealth of Solomon far exceeds anything that I thought or was told. And she comes away from that meeting like that. So what's the comparison? Well, Solomon was known for his wisdom. Jesus says from that story, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's a tremendous statement. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. 
Solomon was known for his wisdom, and yet Jesus, according to Colossians, in him is hidden all the wisdom and knowledge of God. While we've seen that Solomon loved the Lord, he was divided, he strayed. He made some foolish choices in spite of his great wisdom because he lived a sinless, sinful life. Jesus, on the other hand, never strayed and lived a sinless life. Solomon built this great temple, but again, as we've seen, that temple was going to be destroyed. And even just after the dedication ceremony, God tells him that. Jesus says, you destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will build it back in three days, referring to his resurrection, something we'll celebrate here in a few weeks. While Solomon was the last king to rule the United Kingdom, we saw last week and this week that Jesus is the promised heir to David who rules and reigns forever. So when we put our faith and trust in him, he brings us peace with God. And his obedience, here's the key, his obedience is counted as ours. How can we read a story like Solomon and say, well, well I want to be fully faithful to the Lord knowing that we can't do it. Is there any hope for us? And yes, the solution is the faithful obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, that we might be clothed with his righteousness. And that is how we can have peace with God and dwell in the presence of God forever. And that's the only solution. Let me pray. Father, in a sense, we thank you this morning that Solomon's story drives us to you. If Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he made such foolish choices, what hope is there for us? How can we faithfully follow you? And the answer is we can't. But there is one who did. We thank you that he took our sins upon himself that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And because his righteousness is counted as ours, we can dwell in the presence of God forever. That doesn't negate our own obedience, but it does free us to stop striving to earn our own salvation and rest in the salvation that you've provided. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.